Hey, good morning, friends. I'm Perry, one of the pastors here, and let me just be the first to say, maybe not the first, but Happy New Year to you all. Hey, congratulations. In just a few hours, we will all have completed 52 weeks of this year. What a, what a big event, right? It's a great thing, but hey, this, this time of the year, there's something about it between Christmas and New Year's where for many of us, there's a kind of a pause in our schedule or at least a disruption in our normal schedule that gives us a kind of unique perspective on life, gives us maybe even a, a few moments of clarity about our life. And as we have this clarity, we tend to evaluate, we tend to reflect, we tend to take stock of where we're at in our lives and maybe even consider some adjustments we might wanna make going forward. We call these things resolutions. Right, we might think of something like a more responsible budget. We might think of a more restrictive diet. We might think of a more productive schedule. Whatever it might be, all of these kinds of resolutions have the goal of attaining this thing in our imagination that we might just call the good life. The good life is a better way of living life than the life we're living right now. And these resolutions are all aimed at trying to bring it about as our reality. Well, congratulations for another reason, because we've now completed 19 weeks out of this series in the book of Revelation. The 19 weeks, we've seen this unique perspective out of the book of Revelation, just like we have a unique perspective on our calendar. But the book of Revelation gives us this vantage point from God's throne room that is unlike any other vantage point. And from that vantage point, we look back on all of our lives and all of reality, even all of human history, and we see it from a fresh perspective. And that fresh perspective can also give a sense of clarity to us. The book of Revelation has a lot to say about the good life, but it's not about a more productive schedule. It's not about a better diet plan. It's not about any other kind of thing we might normally do with a New Year's resolution. Instead, what the book of Revelation says is this. It says, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Everything we might think of in the good life in our imagination is even surpassed by this word blessed. Blessed means being in the position of God's favor. Blessed means experiencing his grace and his mercy, his privilege in our lives by having a relationship with him. All of the abundance that we seek and we long for is found in the blessed life. But notice that it's not for those who understand the words of the prophecy of this book. It's for those who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. That can be a daunting thing when we consider the fact that this is the book of Revelation we're talking about. It's famously difficult to understand its message. But I'd like to say something that's going to just confirm to you that I'm certifiably crazy. And that's that I think the book of Revelation actually speaks with great clarity to the areas of our lives that matter most. And it's from that unique vantage point that it gives us this clarity that we're going to look at this morning as we look at the closing words of this last book of scripture. We'll be in chapter 22. I invite you to go ahead and turn there now. We'll start off in verse six of Revelation 22. But it's from these words that we're going to see the clarity that Revelation gives us so that we can then in turn 
keep the words of the prophecy of this book. All right, let's look at chapter 22, starting off in verse six. These words will not be on the slides, but I will have many of the verses on the slides after this. Begins this way in verse six. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and that the one who hears say, come, and that the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. There's a lot going on in these final words of the final chapter of the final book of our Bible. But we see this one thing standing out that I've already pointed out. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Revelation begins and ends much the same way. This was a deliberate thing that ancient authors would use to try to emphasize what's most important. And if we went back and we read the first few verses of chapter 1, we would be reminded of how much of what we just read at the end was already stated at the beginning, including this from verse three of chapter one, where you read something very similar, but it's a different situation. There it's blessed is the one who reads aloud the words that they're about to read, and blessed are those who hear it because they're about to read it to each other or have it read to them, and then blessed are those who keep it. We see that the emphasis is on keeping the words of the prophecy of this book. The words are really important. And the first area of clarity that Revelation gives us clarity about that we see in these last words of it is clarity 
about whose words are trustworthy. Look at verse six with me. It says, and he said to me, and that's confusing because we're just jumping in right at the midpoint, but this goes back to the angel who has just shown John the new Jerusalem coming down in all of its splendor. It's that same angel who says to John, these words are trustworthy and true. What does it mean for something to be trustworthy? I think of those people who are crazy enough to go repelling. When you, you step off the edge of a cliff deliberately and decide to put yourself in a position to go meet Jesus if the rope and the harness do not hold you. But as your weight sinks back against that rope and it tightens and the harness begins to squeeze your legs and your waist, you know what it's like for something to be trustworthy. All of your weight is supported by that equipment. All of the weight of our lives is supported by the words that are in this book. They are trustworthy and true. And this isn't just the angel's idea who's, as he's speaking this. But if we read a couple chapters ago, we would hear that there's a voice that John hears from the throne who says, write these words down because they are trustworthy and true. In fact, the whole book of Revelation begins with these words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Everything in here from cover to cover are the words of God. These are the words that are trustworthy and true. We can bank on them. We can count on them. We can depend on them. We can rely on them. And it includes everything. Beginning in chapter one, when we read about Jesus standing among the lampstands, which we said were the, the seven churches. When we went to chapters two and three and we read about the seven messages to those seven churches. When we looked at chapters four and five at the throne room scene, of the one who's exalted standing on the throne. When we looked and we read about those seven different judgments, the three sets of seven judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls. When we looked and we, we read about the dragon, the false prophet, the beast, their rise and how they deceived the nations, but then their demise when we looked at the wonder and the splendor of Babylon and all of its majesty, but then its massive destruction at the end. And then now in these later chapters, as we've seen the descent of the new Jerusalem and all of its glory, everything from cover to cover is trustworthy and true. Words that are true are the trustworthy kind of words and for words to be trustworthy, they need, they need to be true, don't they? But the words of scripture are trustworthy and true. We can count on them. We can bank on them. And we see here in this verse that this, is, this angel has even been sent by God to, his, to show his servants what must soon take place. The messengers are sent directly from the throne room of heaven. We see this in verse 16 as well as we turn there and we, we read about how I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. Again, Revelation is written for the specific purpose and the intent and the audience of these seven churches. But we've seen along the way that even though these churches are far removed from our own day, our own time, our own location, our own culture, we see how the messages to them and the circumstances that they were facing apply to our lives today. There's a great relevance to these words that are trustworthy and true. But in addition, we also read in this last chapter how these words are sufficient and they are complete. Look at verses 18 and 19. 
There's this warning that anyone who tampers with God's word will face judgment. There's a consequence to those who would try to take away from God's word. There's a consequence for those who would try to add to God's word. Is it possible that people might try to do that? In John's day, going again, back to earlier in the book, we read about people who call themselves apostles but are not. We read about a group of people called the Nicolaitans who were leading other people astray. We read about somebody who's holding to the teaching of Balaam, Balaam being somebody from the Old Testament who was trying to lead people astray, lead the Israelites astray. And this person in John's day goes by that label of Balaam. There's also another person who has an Old Testament reference, a woman named Jezebel, who's a a prophetess who's trying to lead the people astray. The point is, there were people in John's day when he wrote these words given to him through the angel from Jesus who were trying to distort the message of God. We live in a day with a lot of voices, don't we? We live in a day where there's a lot of noise A lot of people having loud platforms who were able to proclaim their own version of what's trustworthy and true. You might hear it from political leaders. You might hear it from celebrities. You might hear it from social media figures. There are a lot of different ways we might hear different voices claiming to be trustworthy, claiming to be true in our own time, in our own day and age. But the clarity that the unique perspective of Revelation gives us is clarity about whose words we can trust. One of the challenging things with this for us, though, is that Revelation's perspective is so unique as it peels back the curtain on reality and shows us dimensions of reality that we don't normally have access to that when we go out and we experience life on our own, we don't always recognize all of these things that Revelation has said are trustworthy and true. For example, we don't always notice the sovereignty of God in our daily lives. It can seem when we read the headlines that someone else is in control, it's certainly not God. From the turmoil in our own lives, we might wonder if God is ever going to come rescue us It can be difficult to perceive some of the truths that are spoken of in Revelation because it seems like they're outside of our realm of perception. Just as a way to illustrate, scientists tell us that right now in this room as we sit here still, we're traveling at 67,000 miles an hour as we make our way around the sun and complete this lap that we call a year. Not only that, but Our earth is rotating, right, when we're traveling around the sun. And that figure is almost 800 miles an hour of angular velocity, or the rate of rotation. So 67,000 miles an hour, 800 miles an hour, you're spinning, not even to mention the rate at which our solar system is making its way through the galaxy and the rate at which our galaxy is making its way through space. If you're feeling a little nauseous this morning, it's not the sermon, okay? (laughs) The point is... There are things that are true and real that are outside of our ability to perceive naturally. The book of Revelation gives us a unique perspective that gives us this clarity in turn about whose words we can trust. Praise God. And of course, we can trust the words because as we've already said, they come from God. 
Just a couple chapters ago, there was an image of John seeing, seeing a rider on a white horse and the rider's name is faithful and true. Those are the same two words in the Greek that are used here to talk about the words being trustworthy and true. The same two words because the words are trustworthy because our God who spoke them is trustworthy. And that gets us into the next area of clarity that we see in these final verses out of this final chapter of Revelation. And that is clarity about who's worthy of our worship. Let's look back at the text. And we read about John having this episode in verses eight and nine where he hears these things and when he heard and saw them, it says that he fell down at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. The thing that's almost comical about this is that this is the second time the exact same thing has happened in just a couple chapters. John is clearly trying to make a point here by emphasizing it and by repeating it that only God is worthy of worship in spite of how impressive other things might seem. There are impressive things in our own world, aren't there? But there's nothing as impressive as what this angel's appearance must have been like. Again, this is one of the angels who held one of the seven bowls full of God's wrath. This is the angel who showed John the new Jerusalem. This angel is straight from the throne room of heaven. We can only imagine how majestic its appearance would have been. I can imagine that if an angel appeared in front of us right now, we would all react in ways that we don't even feel like we have control over. We would all react probably falling down to our faces and just our temptation would be to naturally worship this angel, this messenger sent straight from the throne room of heaven. We can understand, but there is no confusion in terms of this angel's part of who is worthy of worship. Some people have made the claim that the book of Revelation is above all a book about worship. That goes back to chapters four and five, those, those throne room scenes. And in chapter five, you might remember there was this central question that was asked. John sees the one seated on the throne and in his right hand is a scroll that's written on both sides. And on that scroll are seven different seals. And the question is asked, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And John looks around in heaven and he finds that no one is worthy. There's no one there who could possibly do this task. But then it says just a couple verses later, behold, to one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll in its seven seals. This worship then just breaks out in heaven about the worthiness of the Lamb of God because John hears about a lion of Judah, but when he turns to look, what he sees is a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And the lamb takes the scroll from the hand of the one who's seated on the throne and then all praise breaks out in heaven over the worthiness of the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. There is no question in heaven who is worthy of worship, even though there might be confusion on earth. 
This is just further reinforced in our passage. If you scroll down or look down to um, verse 13, you see these titles that are given, that are spoken actually straight by Jesus, where he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. These are titles that are very carefully ascribed only to God in the Bible. But here we see Jesus applying them to himself because Revelation shows us that when we talk about worshiping God, we're talking about worshiping Christ. He is the alpha, the omega, the one who has no beginning, the one who has no end. He's eternal, uncreated, standing apart from everything else in the created order. He is the one who is the first, the last, the beginning, and the end. If we go on and look at the second part of verse 16, there are more titles where Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Old Testament prophets spoke of this coming figure who was known as the root of David, somebody out of the lineage of David who would serve as a king, who would rule and reign on earth, establishing his kingdom, providing protection and comfort for his people. That's who Jesus is. And then in a reference that might have a couple of different points of significance to it, he's called the bright morning star. Most simply and literally, this is probably a reference to the planet Venus that when you look into the sky before the dawn, you can see this single point of bright light pointing to the hope of the dawn that is coming and the sun that will be rising to push back the darkness. It's a point of God's kingdom coming. The hope that it brings that we just celebrated last week. This is who Jesus is. It's the exalted status of his nature, the exalted status of his, of his being. And through it, we see this clarity in the book of Revelation of who is worthy of our worship, whose words are trustworthy and who is worthy of our worship. There are a lot of shiny objects in our world that our hearts might go after. In John's day, this is set deep into the power of the Roman Empire. And in, in that setting, the Roman Empire often took credit for the, the peace, for the prosperity, for the abundance that the empire enjoyed. And because it took credit for those things, it would then demand the allegiance and the loyalty of its citizens in return. An idolatrous kind of loyalty. Can something like that happen in our own world? Is it possible that powers and organizations, groups, governments might take credit for things that are not theirs to take credit for and in return ask for a level of commitment and loyalty from us that we should not be given to them? How about in another way, thinking of our, our culture's propensity to chase after celebrities? We are a celebrity-crazed society. We see people who, who look impressive, who act like they're impressive, who claim to be impressive, whose lives are on display and all of their wealth and all of their material possessions and, and whether it's real or fake, our hearts can go after them. Pretty soon our loyalty can be divided between trying to follow Christ and trying to follow another human being. We must not do that, worship God. Let the angel's words be the, be the words to us. There's only one who is worthy of our worship. There's only one who is our rescuer. And that is a third 
area of clarity that we see from the book of Revelation because it gives us clarity over the course of all of human history. We saw this last week, if you were here for the Christmas Eve services. Pastor Tom put these verses up here. I wanna point them out again though because we have these multiple repeated places where Jesus says something very similar. Verse seven, and behold, I am coming soon. Verse 12, behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. People have scoffed at the idea that Jesus is actually coming soon. I mean, come on, hasn't it been almost 2,000 years? We would do well to remember the words that were spoken at the end of the first century when people were already scoffing back then at the return of Christ. This is from 2 Peter chapter three where Peter talks about scoffers in the last days who will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter goes on and says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. When we talk about Jesus coming soon, what we mean is that Jesus could return at any moment. Jesus' return is imminent, that it could happen before the new year. It could happen in this next year, it could happen five, 10, 15 years from now. It could happen thousands of years from now. We do not know. But what we do know is that when he comes, it will be in an instant. And he could come at any point. There's an urgency that comes out of this. In fact, that urgency is reflected in the text here. Where we read here some instructions that the angel gives to John about these words that he's written down. And it says in verses 10 and 11, he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, the filthy still be filthy, the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. That's a kind of a, a shocking follow-up to this statement here, but what's being said here is that people are going to continue on in the path that they've chosen. But this is a warning it's a warning to those who have chosen a path that's contrary to the ways of God. But it's an encouragement to those who are following after Christ because he's coming soon. But in the meantime, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. The time is now. This is an echo from the book of Daniel where Daniel is also talking about a scroll and he is instructed there to seal it up because the time is not yet right. Let the evil still do evil and the righteous still do righteous. But here in Revelation, don't seal it up because the time is now. There is an urgency to all of this because Christ is coming back. This is a great gift to us because there is an overwhelmingly clear sense of purpose to our lives when we consider the fact that Jesus could come at any moment. This is kind of a silly example that doesn't even work because it's of such a different magnitude. But in my own experience of my daily tasks, I generally work better when I have a deadline. I generally work better when I know that I have an appointment to prepare for that's 
on the near term. I generally am very focused and concentrated when I know I have a flight to catch. I'm not sure about traffic, not sure about the TSA line. But in those moments, I have great clarity about what I should be giving myself to, what kind of purpose I have in the moment. Can I suggest to you that because Christ is coming soon, that that should give us great clarity in terms of the purpose of our lives. That our lives should be about preparing for his coming. That our lives should be about doing the kinds of things that, that he will find pleasing when he returns. This gives me freedom from the trivial pursuits of this world to go after and try to stockpile, accumulate, and acquire my way to some sense of significance and happiness. No, no, I know that Jesus is returning soon. There's no time for those things. The gift of this, knowing that Jesus is coming soon, is the clarity it gives about the purpose of our lives. So as we think about all of these together, we think about the fact that Revelation actually speaks with great clarity, even though it's famous for its confusion. But it gives us great clarity in these areas of life about whose words are trustworthy, about who's worthy of our worship, as we consider the fact that Jesus is returning soon so our lives have great purpose right now. As we think about those things, maybe it's worthwhile for us to step back and ask a couple of different kinds of questions when we think about our life and any kind of resolutions we might wanna make. Maybe it's worthwhile asking, am I really finding Christ's words to be trustworthy? In terms of like, am I actually living my life in accordance with his words? We might also ask, is Christ really worthy of all of my worship or is my worship divided somehow? Am I chasing after some other pursuit that I should not be chasing after, giving a level of loyalty or allegiance to some other thing that I should not be giving allegiance or loyalty to? Perhaps I'm, I'm not living with the kind of purpose in my life because I'm living as though things are just gonna continue on indefinitely, one day after another, one week, one month after another, one year after another, as though there's no end. Are we ready for the return of Christ? Do we long for the return of Christ? Because if we don't long for his return, then we're not ready for his return. We don't understand what it means. All of this, though, is not about increasing our understanding. If you walk away from the sermon and say, wow, I, I feel like I understand Revelation better, okay, great, but that's not the point. Remember, all of this is under the banner of this verse we looked at at the start. Blessed are those who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. It's about acting on this. God's blessings are for those who respond to the words of his revelation. Not the ones who have just heard it, not the ones who are familiar with it, but the ones who respond to it, who take action, who align their lives based upon it. We have to live out these words to have God's blessing. But if we stopped right here, we would be in some pretty dangerous territory. Think about resolutions. If you make it into March, you're doing pretty well, right? 
Most resolutions, you fall flat on your face somewhere around February. If we try to do this in our own strength, we will fail, guaranteed. If we try to live this on our own initiative, our own effort, our own cleverness, we will fail 100% of the time. That's why the last words of our Bibles are so important. These last words unlock the key for us in terms of how we can live this out. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. If we try to live this out apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus, it's hopeless. But with the grace of the Lord Jesus in our lives, he can empower us, enable us to do anything, especially to fulfill what he's commanded us to do and to be. Look at the invitational nature of his grace. We skipped over it, but I want to come back to it in verse 17. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And that the one who hears say, come. And that the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The beautiful picture of God's grace and the invitation of God's grace into our lives. It's God's grace that enables us to even realize, to recognize who Jesus is. It's God's grace that allows us to respond to who he is because he's opened our eyes, he's softened our hearts. And it's God's grace that works in our lives so that we will rely on him day after day, week after week, year after year. Our job in that equation is to be thirsty. Our job is to desire the water that we can't pay for because we're broke before God. All of us comes empty-handed before God, asking for his mercy, asking for his blessing. And this refreshing water of life is just a metaphorical way of describing the life-giving blessing of his grace. And without it, we're hopeless, but with it, we can walk in the words of the prophecy of this book. It's God's grace that enables it. The blessings of God are for those who respond to his revelation. The blessings of God are for those who respond to his grace. What can we do this next coming year to lean more heavily into the grace of God in our lives? Because if we can answer that question, we can experience God's blessing as we live out the words of the prophecy of this book. Would you pray with me? God, we ask for that. We ask for your grace to be able to do this in our lives, Lord, so that, that we would live lives that are aligned with the purposes that you have for us. Lord, that are aligned with your trustworthy words that you've given to us. God, we want our worship to be oriented exclusively and solely towards you because you alone are worthy. Lord, we wanna live lives where we are ready for your coming. And God, we know that none of this is possible in our own strength. But we need you, Father, and the power of your spirit, the power of your grace at work in us to make it happen. So Lord, as we close this book now, as we end this series, as we wrap up this year, I pray, Father, that we would walk each step of the way by your side. Lord, that we would... 
we would stay close by your side so that we might experience the fullness of your grace and the goodness of your kingdom that's coming now. Father, we pray for your, your reign and for your rule to come into our lives and into this world. And until then, Lord, I pray that we would be faithful in the way that we follow you. We ask this all in the powerful name of King Jesus. Amen.